You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org. We'll be in Colossians 3 today, starting in verse 12. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12 through 17. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that'll be on page 925, starting in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, and above all, These put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Please be seated. Lord, I pray that you might direct the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts. May they be in keeping with your holy and revealed world. In your name, amen. Prisoner number 24601, please step forward. This is the line that introduces us to Jean Valjean, the protagonist of the Victor Hugo 1862 classic Les Miserables, a novel that follows the fictional life of Jean Valjean, this released prisoner, from 1815 to 1832, the historical years, the historical setting of the Second French Revolution under King Charles X. This book has become a global classic and has spun off some numerous successful film and stage adaptations. At the beginning of the book, we meet Jean Valjean as he is paroled after serving a prison sentence for stealing. He travels that day from the prison to a town of Dinge, and he's required when he shows up there to present his papers to the local magistrate that identify him as an ex-con. And this news spreads around the town, and he is denied lodging at the inn. He's not allowed to, to stay at the square, the dog kennels. He even goes to the local jail trying to seek shelter, and is turned away. He is cold, tired, starving, and it starts to rain. As he is wandering the town, trying to find a way not to freeze to death that night, he comes upon a church. The door is answered by a Bishop Myrill, a hero of the book, personifying compassion and mercy. Bishop Myrill takes pity on Jean Valjean. He takes him in, feeds him, lets him sleep by the fire, and in the morning he serves him breakfast, But instead of being grateful, Jean Valjean steals the silverware that he is using. Back then, silverware was actually made of silver before American steel, as it did not tarnish. And he returns to his old way of life. He is caught trying to sell the silver in the town. The police drag him back to the church to verify his crime, and Jean Valjean knows that his life is finished. He will likely die in prison. His life is over. As they arrive at the church, Bishop Mild greets Jean with surprise, and he says, Ah, there you are, he explained from the book, looking at Jean Valjean. I am glad to see you. Well, how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too. 
which are silver like the rest. Why did you not carry them away with the forks and the spoons? Confused, the police leave. Bishop Myles then turns to Jean Valjean and he says, with this silver, I purchase your soul. Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer a belonging of evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it back from the black thoughts, the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Jean Valjean opens his eyes and stares at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. This is what made Victor Hugo such a wonderful author, his ability to capture the human condition and emotion. Now, this book is not an allegory. Jean Valjean did not become a Christian per se, but he was redeemed temporally by this bishop. And we see a picture of a light, the light of human emotion and the response in light of this redemption. And what a cocktail of emotion it was. Sweeping over Jean Valjean, the book says that he could not have told whether he was touched or humiliated. There was joy not going to prison. There was shame at what he had done, surprised at the bishop's actions, relief that his life was spared. And all this boils up to a deep resolve to change his life. He is a new man. Church, today Paul writes that as we stand before Christ, we are Jean Valjean. We are repeat offenders. And Christ not only forgives us, but he gives us access to the Godhead. In this story, if the silverware and the forgiveness are salvation, then the access to the Godhead would be the candlesticks too. Jean Valjean's redemption was temporal, but ours is eternal. And Paul has spent the first two chapters, Colossians, all but shaking the Colossian believers, trying to get them to see this and to understand what it means. The church at Colossae and the church at Sugarland should be going through this same emotional cocktail as Jean Valjean. Valjean. And it should result in the same resolve, a resolve to put off the old, a resolve to put on the new as a new creation in Christ, not to earn or to keep our salvation, but as a response to this incredible gift. And we see this response is threefold. Last week we discussed what we're to put on, this put off. This week we're going to discuss what to put on. And then in subsequent weeks we'll go over specific applications of these things. Today we're going to unpack this in three points. The first, first point is who we are in light of Christ. The second is what to put on in light of this. And third is love and thanksgiving. Starting with point one, who we are in him. We're going to start by reading verses 10 and 11 and then leading into 12 through 14. At the beginning of verse 12, we see a Greek word called un. The ESV translates it put on then, but it is, can be translated therefore and is in many other translations. And it is a cause and effect word. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you must ask yourself, what is it therefore? What is it referencing? And we'll do that here in verse 10. Starting verse 10, chapter 3, and you have to put and have, and have put on the new image, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Chapter 2, belabored Christ's work for us. And in chapter 3, we see the response. And the first response we get is Christian unity. 
Christ has redeemed for himself a nation of sinners unto his own. The greatest unity that we should feel in this life is through him. Then Paul does something interesting. He lays out almost what appears to be a comprehensive list of what could be dividing the Colossian church. Jew and Greek, nationality and culture, calls back to the old covenant, Judaism. Here we have probably a very diverse congregation. It's in Turkey, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey is a melting pot of Asia, of this, of this rising Roman Empire. We have circumcision and uncircumcision, referencing religious observance and covenant. And we have slave and free, social class. And we have barbarian, Scythian. This is almost, this is almost a call against a, a racism. Now, back then, there was a lot more division amongst the people group, right? But there was still this lower class. There was the barbarian. Those are the people that were outside of the European area. It was to the west or to the south. And the lowest of the barbarian is the Scythian in that culture. This is a statement of ultimate inclusion, and it would have been shocking probably to the church at the Colossae. Certainly we can have Jew and Greek, right? But, but not, the, not the barbarian, not the, not the Scythian. But what Paul says is if God redeems the soul of a barbarian or a Scythian, that individual belongs next to you in the chair at church. Unlikely that there was barbarians in Colossae, but this is, what the, this is the point that Paul is getting across. Paul says, Christ is all and in all. This would have been a powerful countercultural statement at the time. Christ's world is holistic and complete, and it takes these things that would divide us, that would stratify us, that would pit us against one another, and he washes it away. Before we get into the effect... Paul identifies those redeemed in Christ in three ways, in the same way that he identified Christ in three ways in chapter 2. If we look up the page to chapter 2 and verse 6, we see, Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Now, he didn't need to point these things out. He didn't need to call Jesus three different names, but he does so with a purpose. He references Christ as the promised Messiah, Jesus as our Savior, and Lord identifying him as God as having all authority. And we see, if we move back down to our text in chapter 3, verse 12, put on then, therefore, as God's what? Chosen ones, holy, beloved. This is one of the most beautiful books of the Bible and almost has a poetic structure in the way that it's laid out. This is who Christ is to us and who we are in light of Christ. First, the chosen ones, this all-powerful Messiah, Lord Creator, chose his people from before time. We are not converted by human choice, but we, were converted, but, but, but we are converted by divine purpose. John 15, 16, Christ says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go bear fruit. In Romans 8, we see God foreknew and predestined us to be called justified and glorified us. In the sister letter, Ephesians 1, uh, the sister letter of, of Colossians, we see in Ephesians 1, in verse 4, he chose us before the, before the foundation of the world. And we see purpose here as we move over to Ephesians 2. And verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Christian, our lives should be empty of pride. Some have argued here that Paul is talking um, is in, in, in the Ephesian church is speaking only to the Jews. But this is absurdly laid bare, as in Colossians. In chapter 11, Paul identified his audience. And likely the Ephesian and Colossian churches are one of the most diverse areas in Asian Minor. He speaks to his chosen, the Jew, the Greek, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the barbarian, 
the Scythian, the free, the slave. And we are holy. The Greek word here uh, refers to being set apart. We're physically pure in him, morally blameless, ceremoniously, ceremonially consecrated. First Peter 1.16, you shall be holy because I am holy. So notice the imperative, you shall. We are holy in Christ. And then finally, one of the most, probably most of the, one of the most great descriptors here, we are beloved. We are not just chosen, we are not just set apart. But we have access to the Godhead through Christ. We are given the candlesticks too. We are given a relationship with the living God, and we are the objects of his incomprehensible love. He is Christ, Jesus, Lord, and therefore we are chosen, holy, beloved. Church, do we spend time reflecting on the value of God's spiritual gift to us? What divides our church? Here in Houston, we live in the most diverse uh, metropolitan area uh, probably in the country, and we see that reflected in our congregation. That's a wonderful thing, but as we grow, as we continue to expand, uh, Lord willing, things will creep in. Small things like diets, profession, interests, age, possibly schooling methods, politics. I call on you to be part of that solution. Break down those things. Our unity is in Christ and nothing else. Who are the barbarians today? Is there a social class or people that we find irreprehensible? We are one in Christ. Are we impressing Christian unity upon our children? in our words and in our actions? Are we exercising the access that we have to the Godhead through Christ as we should? This was discussed in a Sunday school this morning, praying, fellowship, reading scriptures. This should not be onerous. It's a privilege. It is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Moving on to point two. Point two, what to put on. We read again, pick up the scripture here in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. He is Christ, Jesus Lord, therefore we are chosen holy, beloved, and it has an effect, it has an outcome, and here we see it in Colossians 3, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We see a similar list, fruits of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a calling for Christians to be like Christ, to call to sanctification. James 1, 4, so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This doesn't mean that we are perfect human beings. It means that we have become mature. We are complete in Christ. And there are many similarities between these two inspired writings of Paul that we will discuss as we go through them and the effect of this new creation. First, compassionate hearts. The Greek here literally says bowels of mercy, and some translations actually translate it that way. This is the figurative gut or the heart, the seat of human emotion. May it be characterized by compassion. This is the primary, this is first in the list, as it probably, probably very directly reflects the character of God, and we saw that in the reading today. This is the same word that is used of Christ in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, 
he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This has an internal and an external expl- uh, application. External, the redeemed heart sees the world with compassion. The only thing separating us from them is our shepherd. We're not a little bit more spiritual. We did not respond better. We were not born with a little bit more grace. The only thing separating us from the world and sin is our shepherd. And it has an internal application as well. The redeemed heart sees themselves and fellow believers as sheep, saved not by works, but saved by a shepherd and the same before a shepherd. We come to uh, kindness. The word here uh, can be translated goodness and often is. Uh, we see this reflected in the first fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Galatians 5. And we see that uh, <clears throat> this is something that is used as one of the chief descriptors of God. Good is God's very nature. From creation, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good for the fall, Genesis 1.31. And every good thing comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, James 1.17. It is to say that we should live in accordance with God's nature. To say that God is good means that God always acts in accordance with what is right, with what is true, what is good. And his children, we should, as his children, we should seek to emulate this. Humility. Our understanding of who we are before Christ should produce humility. This is the opposite of pride. Humility in the Bible is presented as a practice of meekness, obedience to God, putting others before their, others' needs before our, their own, sacrificing for the love of others. As sinners, our hearts are steeped in pride. Remember the first, the first sin in, original, in, in Genesis chapter 3. Why did they eat the apple? They ate the apple because they wanted to be like God. Again, we are called to imitate Christ. Parallel Genesis 3 with Philippians 2 and verse 6. six who, though he was in, form, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What a wonderful parallel between those two passages. This was Christ, Messiah, Savior God for our sake. How much more should we be overcome with humility? A biblical understanding of chosen, holy, and beloved will lead to humility, a diminished self. And a church characterized this will experience ultimate unity in him. We move, on, we move on to meekness. Again, a reflection of Galatians 5, uh, be similar to gentleness or self-control. Meekness is not weakness, it is power under control. When I was young and, and my father was explaining this, uh, this concept to me, he would point out a man that, that went to church with us, his name was Thane. He was probably six foot eight, blonde hair, probably descended, descended from Ragnar the Viking himself. Uh, I would shake his hand. To this day, I shake his hand. And my, I'm not a small man, but my hand barely gets around his palm. God saved this good man out of alcoholism and violence and turned him into a gentle giant, a servant of the church, someone that you immediately look at and say, this man does not lack power, but he is meek. I think of R.C. Sproul. Before he died, he had the mental horsepower of a jet engine. But the way he spoke, whether you agreed or disagree, he did not use that brain of his to hurt or demean. Even the people that disagree with him, even his critics, would give him quarter because of the way that he presented his information. This is meekness. 
And again, Philippians 2.6, probably the greatest example. Who did not count equality with God something to be grasped? Ultimate control was available to Christ. And Proverbs says in 16.32, Proverbs 16.33, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than those who captures a great city. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 5, we see, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is not a monetary inheritance. This is not a power inheritance. This is an inheritance of the spiritual, the spiritual gifts of this life. And we must handle our spiritual gifts to edify the body, to reflect Christ's goodness and his nature upon the world, never to hurt or take advantage of others. Patience. Again, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. We're called to imitate Christ, 1 Peter 3.15, to count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you. In our culture, patience seems passive, but biblical patience is active. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race set before us. This is a willingness to suffer injury or insult rather than hurt others. It could also be translated long-suffering or the opposite of quick to anger. Biblical patience is persevering towards a goal, enduring trials, expectantly waiting a promise to be fulfilled, as in Hebrews 12. We should be so focused on the internal things so much that injury and insult fade in importance. Then finally, verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. The picture here is a believer so overcome, so by who they are in Christ, complete in him, that forgiveness comes pouring out. We are chosen, holy, beloved, by an all-holy God. Therefore, we are to be characterized by compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And forgiveness is just a given. This calls to mind the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, and we're just going to take a moment to, uh, to read a few verses there. Matthew 18, if you want to turn, uh, verses 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I have had mercy on you? It's almost a, a story of, of uh, an, a, an exaggeration to make a point. A 10,000 talents in today's money uh, estimated about $3 billion. This is an absurd amount, something that, this, that we could never repay, something that this servant could pay, something that we could never repay. And... A uh, hundred denarii, probably somewhere between two or three thousand dollars. He should have responded with forgiveness, and we should respond with forgiveness. As absurd as that as, as, as absurd as that dichotomy stands, what we have before Christ is more. 
Well, the application here is almost implied, compassion. Do we see the world with compassion as the only thing separating us from them as our shepherd? Do we see our fellow believers as sheep, not saved by, uh, not saved by works, but the same before our shepherd? Kindness or goodness? Do we always act and seek to act in accordance with what is good, right, and true? Humility, does this understanding lead to a diminished self? Does this lead to an experience of unity in our church? Meekness, do we handle our spiritual gifts to reflect, to edify the body and reflect God's nature upon the world? Patience, are we focused on the eternal things so much that injury or insult fade in importance? And finally, forgiveness, does this all create a heart that overflows in forgiveness? Does it create a culture of forgiveness in our church? This brings us to point three, love and thanksgiving. And above all, verse, uh, starting in verse 14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, Word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to the God, the Father, through him. The picture here is cause and effect. The focus moves to the, from the believer to the church or the body. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, fueled by love, bring forth true Christian community. Therefore, the word dwells. And therefore, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, the body functions. And above all is love. The example here I like to use is that of an engine. We have a design in, 12, in verses 12 and 13. But what does it run on? We have an engine. We have the pistons. We have the crankshaft. We have the flywheel. We have the powertrain all in line. We have, we have the timing all sorted out. But it is useless without fuel and oil. And you put in the wrong fuel and oil, you will get the wrong result. The fuel and oil of the body is love. This is what motivates us. This is what guides us. And humans in the world are very good at sniffing out motivation. They see what motivates us. And here in the church, it will be love. If, you don't, if this doesn't make sense, I would, I would encourage you to go to a car dealership next week. You will be met with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But love will not be what binds it all together. It will be the hope of a sale. And the love here is the agape. The Greek word, Greek has eight different words for love. And here in English, we use uh, love pretty fluidly. That I have love for my children and love for my wife, which is not the same that I have uh, for the love for a really good steak. Right? But here in the Greek, they, they lay it all out. And this is the agape love. It is the self-sacrificial self love, the love you might feel for a relative, love you might feel for a child. And it results in harmony within the body, the church. Love leads to harmony and in turn thanksgiving. And there is a purpose to this thanksgiving. We see it more clearly when we take chapters 2 and 3 as one continuous thought, because they are. If we go up to chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted up, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy of empty deceit, according to the human traditions and according with the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. As we discussed a few weeks ago, Thanksgiving is a guard that stands at our hearts and protects the body from heresy and spiritual corruption. It's hard to mislead a thankful heart. A thankful heart knows what it has been saved to, but also what it has been saved from. First and foremost, we are saved from the wrath of a righteous God. But Paul continues to to expand upon this in chapter 2, as we just read. A philosophy of empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of this world, to Christ. We are saved to walk in him, rooted up, built up in him. And we are saved from lies that come from a world that get handed down generation to generation that are elemental. The Greek here is basic. They're kind of dumb. They're not even even good lies. And we see this reflected again in verses Colossians 2, uh, 16 through 8. Let no disqualify you for these elemental things. And then again in Colossians 2.20, to die to these elemental spirits. The church at Colossae had been saved from a pantheon of disinterested gods available to them in their culture through the Greek and the Roman pantheon. And Paul says, you want to go back, back to that? That's where you want to go? What has the church been saved from today? Well, we can go east and look at the mysticism, the unattainable enlightenment. We can think our way up to some sort of conversion into energy manner and an ascension to some spiritual plane. We could go to the Middle East, to religion of oppression, with a temporal-based afterlife. We could go to South Asia, reincarnation. You want to repeat this rat race over and over and over again? We could go to the Roman Catholic Church. No more priesthood of the believer. Access to the Godhead goes through the church. What could go wrong? Or we could bring it closer to home, secularism. Truth is in self. Joy is found in a life of sin. Believers, we've looked inside, and we've seen sin, and there's nothing there for us. Or we could go to Utah. We perform and do well in this life. We could become gods ourselves. Or we can try the tried and true cult model. I have a revelation from God that you can access for a price. Or even closer to our backyard, the health and wealth, we could put up a big billboard, sell blessed handkerchiefs, and we could promise people health and wealth based on performance. Well, that sounds good, right? That's attractive. But no, remember James 1 and verse 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That's not for you. Now trials are punishment. That's not freedom. That's not blessing. That's bondage. That's not freedom in Christ. Of course, these choices don't exist. All of these are lies. The choice is an eternity with Christ or without him. And this is all basic, old lies. But to understand our thankfulness and its purpose in verse 16 and 17, let's go one step deeper. Just because these spirits are elemental and basic does not mean that the theology or the ideas aren't often convincing. We see this in Colossians 2.23. These have indeed have the appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion. But what Paul says here is not that they're not attractive, but that they all share the same business model. And that's what makes them elemental. If you go to business school, we talk about value a lot, creating value, value centers, and that these value creators create a, a value, a business model. Well, you don't have to go to business school today because the spirits from Paul's days and our day have the, safe, have the same basic business plan complexity of a hot dog stand. A hot dog sells, stand sells hot dogs. That's one value center. And it is fueled by hunger. People come who are hungry. All these religions do one thing. All these ideas, all these spirits do one thing. They sell access to the Godhead. 
and they have one value center, and their demand is, is, is fueled by what? Fear and pride. I'm more enlightened than you. If you don't buy this, this thing from me, if you don't listen to me, then, then you will be judged. The theology may be fancy, but the spirit is elemental. And church, use this as a litmus test. Regardless of what somebody may be promoting, heresy will always come down to the crux of exchanging something for access to the Godhead. But Christ is not elemental. And in so being, he robs these spirits of their power. We are saved from sin, from a righteous, from a righteous God to Christ, the wrath of a righteous God to Christ. What they sell, Christ makes free to you. We get the candlesticks as well. Well, if the church can't manipulate and sell access to, uh, to you with pride and fear, well, how can it function? Well, remember verse 14, above all love. Verse 14, above all, these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called to one body, and be thankful. The church is fueled by love producing thanksgiving, producing harmony. Love for Christ and love for the body. Yes, we give. We have a box in the back where we give, but we do this as an act of worship. We're not scoring points for the afterlife. We do this out of love for Christ and love for the body. We fellowship here, not to get our attendance cards punched, not so that we can show up at heaven's gates and say we were here 86.7% of Sundays, but we do it out of love for Christ and the body. We pray, not because we want to complete some onerous task, not because we want to show up and have a certain amount of time on our knees. We do it out of love of Christ and love for the body, and we evangelize and we seek to make disciples out of love for Christ and love for the Bible body. Daniel, Ben, and I do not have some inside track on God. We are sinners saved by grace. We have nothing to sell. All we have is God's gift and truth found in his revealed word. Believer, does your faith run on love? Does your life reflect a love for Christ and the body? Do you guard your heart with thanksgiving? Do we spend time giving thanks for what we have been saved from? What spirits have enticed us? We have so much better in Christ. And kiddos today, we don't often say this, but it's not required that you make all of your own mistakes. Whatever you think will take the place of God, whatever elemental spirit you think will, will uh, create a wholeness and completeness in you, I guarantee you somebody in this room has tried it and will tell you that it's empty. Fame, ability, drugs, alcohol, position, friends, whatever you think can replace God will be empty. If you're not a believer, this love and thanksgiving can be yours. Verse 13, Romans 3 says that we are spiritually dead. And the wages of this this death, this register of this sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Philippians 2, 6, I'll read it one more time. Who, though he, Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we are to imitate Christ in this, Romans 10 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I invite you to do this today. Talk to Daniel, Ben, any of the other, people, any of the other members of the church. We'd love to walk you through this. And true redemption is transformative. Like Daniel said last week, like a caterpillar and a butterfly, it produces, produces compassion, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, fueled by a love-producing thanksgiving. This is beautifully captured, this emotional cocktail, in the words of Victor Hugo describing what redemption felt like in Jean Valjean. I'm just going to read a couple of uh, paragraphs of the book because it's so, so pointed. This recurred in his mind unceasingly. To this celestial kindness he opposed pride, which was a fortress of evil within us. He was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest was a great assault, this most formidable attack, which had moved him yet, that his adversity was finally settled if he rested in this clemency, that if he yield, he should be obliged to renounce the hatred which the actions of other men had filled his soul with so for so many years, which pleased him that this time it was necessary to conquer or be conquered, that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle, had begun between two natures, the viciousness, his viciousness, and the goodness of God. Jean Valjean wept for a long time. He felt burning tears. He sobbed with weakness, more fright than a child. As he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul, an extraordinary light, a light at once ravishing and terrible, his past life, his first fault, his longest piation, his external broodedness, his internal hardness, his dismissal to liberty, rejoicing in manifold plans of vengeance. What had happened to him at the bishop? The last thing he had done, a crime more cowardly than the first and more monstrous since it had come after the bishop's kindness. All this recurred in his mind and appeared clearly before him, but with a clearness which had never hitherto witnessed. He examined his life, and it seemed more horrible to him. His soul, and it seemed to frighten him in the meantime, a gentle light rested over his life and his soul. It seemed to him that he had beheld Satan and his soul by the light of paradise, and he would never be that creature again. Believers, we are new creations in Christ. And unlike Jean Valjean, our redemption is even more beautiful as it is eternal. He is Christ, Jesus, Lord. Therefore, we are chosen, holy, beloved. Therefore, we put on the product is compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience fueled by love. Therefore, the church functions, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Therefore, thanksgiving abounds and protects. We have been saved to and from so much. Rejoice. This is Paul's inspired instruction to the church at Colossae and to the church of Sugarland this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who we are in you. Lord, we thank you that our souls have been saved to and from so much. Lord, we pray that you might develop these things in us, that we might be complete creations in you, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.